the last time we were in Revelation, you know, Jesus began opening seven seals. Uh, remember that John had seen in God's right hand a scroll, and uh, that scroll was sealed up with, with seven seals. And the scroll contains God's plan to bring history to its climax in the new heavens and, and the new earth. But only Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. Only Jesus can enact God's plan because he alone conquered through the cross and resurrection. And so we see this picture of Jesus seated at God's right hand and one by one he is breaking the seals. Now we, we studied the first Four seals in, in verses one to eight, we uh, these these four horsemen appeared, uh, one for conquest, another for bloodshed, another for famine or or economic hardship, uh, and 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 then the last for death. And we saw that these are God's judgments against a world at ease in its rebellion. Okay, they 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 are not. Judgments limited to the very end of time, they are part of our present experience between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' return. I tried sketching it for you like this uh, last time, where the arrows are representing Jesus' resurrection and return. Uh, until Jesus returns for, for final judgment, he sends these smaller judgments to to shatter the pride of nations, to expose the folly of finding our security in in the worldly systems around us, uh, and to reveal that man is truly powerless in the face of death. He he sends these judgments and leaves mankind undone and, and desperately searching. Okay, but alongside these judgments, this is seal five is, that, that we're getting to today. Alongside these judgments is the church on mission. And that's where the fifth seal enters the picture. Alongside God's persistent warnings, Jesus appoints Christians to lay down their lives in spreading the good news about Jesus' victory. Okay, the, the fifth seal reveals how martyrdom is part of God's purpose... ...in spreading the gospel to all peoples. That's, that's one thing we're going to see today. But simultaneously, you need to know that the fifth seal... ...is continuing God's judgments against the world at ease in its rebellion. All the seals are part of the Lamb's judgments... ...including the cries of the martyrs. Okay, so we're, we're getting one coherent picture of Jesus reigning and Jesus working to replace all rebel kingdoms with his own kingdom. Some of that work comes with Jesus commissioning heavenly agents for judgment. Some of that work comes with Jesus answering the cries of his people. For justice. The world thinks it's going to snuff out the church by killing Christians. 
But what we're seeing here is that it becomes self-defeating. Their deaths only mount up further judgment from the Lamb. Let's read verses 9 to 11 and make a few observations and then see how we fit into this picture. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. All right, I want to look at this in four, four parts. First, the martyr's sacrifice. The martyr's sacrifice. Verse 9 says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Another way to translate that last part is for the testimony they were, they were holding on to. Okay? Like, a, like a treasure. Over time... And facing opposition, they they kept holding on to Jesus' testimony. They did not waver from obeying God's word. Publicly, they had identified with Jesus. They kept speaking what Jesus had delivered to them. And now we see that it has cost them their lives. This is a steady theme throughout Revelation. In chapter 1, verse 9, we saw that John himself was exiled to Patmos for the word of God. In chapter 2, verse 10, some in Smyrna were facing imprisonment for the gospel. In chapter 3, verse 8, Christians in Philadelphia, in Philadelphia face hardship for keeping Jesus' word. And now we have here the martyrs. Under the altar. Jesus said this would happen. This kind of thing would happen. Matthew chapter 24 verse 9. They will deliver you up to tribulation. And put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. What we're seeing here is that the church does not escape tribulation. The church dies in tribulation to spread the testimony of Jesus. At the same time, John depicts for us what the New Testament indicates elsewhere. That for the Christian to depart from this world is to find yourself in the presence of Jesus. These martyrs still wait for their glorified bodies at the resurrection. But in the interim, these martyrs find themselves beneath God's heavenly altar. Why are they beneath an altar? Throughout Revelation, there's only one altar in heaven. We see it again in chapter 8, verse 3. An angel stands at this same altar uh, with a golden censer. And he offers incense, it says, along with all the prayers of the saints. 
In chapter 9, verse 13, John sees this altar before God's throne. And so standing beneath the altar shows that these martyrs, they are not forgotten. They are not cast aside. They are not abandoned. God has ushered them into His presence before His throne, the place where He listens to their cries and He stores them up as sweet incense. But something else to note is the way John describes their death. He says those who had been slain were slaughtered. This is the same word in the Old Testament. When a priest would take a lamb and slit its throat, slaughter it as a sacrifice. It's also the same word used to describe Jesus in chapter 5, verse 6. When John says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain or slaughtered. These Christians have followed in the footsteps of their Savior, the Lamb. Jesus laid down His life like a lamb prepared For slaughter. Within John's vision, these martyrs have done the same. In obedience to God's word, they have offered their lives as sacrifices. Now, their sacrifice doesn't liberate people from sin. Only Jesus' sacrifice does that. But when Jesus' sacrifice liberates from sin, you then live wholeheartedly for the Lord, even if that requires your death. Like Jesus, they have poured out their blood for the sake of others. Now to the world, looking on at these deaths, these deaths are, are but a waste. It's ridiculous. But from heaven's perspective, we're seeing here that their sacrificial deaths rise before the Lord like a pleasing aroma. That's why John sees them beneath the altar. This is Revelation's way of echoing Jesus' words to take up your cross and follow him. It is Revelation's way of echoing Jesus' words to lose your life for his sake and the gospel's. Back in chapter 2... Verse 10, we learn that uh, Satan was about to throw some of these Christians into into prison. And Jesus' word to those believers was, Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Now, what's going to keep you following through when your Savior tells you, Be faithful unto death? One was the picture of Jesus' glory that we saw in chapter 1. But something else that, that will strengthen you in those moments, something else that will, that will help you be faithful unto death is the picture that we are getting here. We're seeing here that, that your death will not be wasted. Your blood will not be spilled in vain. 
Your, your sacrifice fits into God's story like this. It will rise like a sweet aroma before the Lord. He will bring you into his presence and he will answer all of your cries. And that's where we're heading next, is the martyr's cry. The martyr's cry. Look at uh, verse 10. It says, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, some might question a prayer like this, because it kind of runs a contrary to, to our expectations, doesn't it? Isn't God supposed to wipe away our tears when we're in his presence? And yes, he will, but we must remember that these martyrs are still in the intermediate state. God's purposes are not fully complete. Others question their cry because it sounds harsh and unforgiving. But as others have pointed out, these these martyrs' cries, they align with Paul's words in Romans 12, verse 9. You see, instead of avenging themselves, instead of taking out their frustrations on their enemies, on their persecutors, they have left room for the wrath of God. They know that God is a better judge and they entrust judgment into the hands of a faithful judge and that frees them to love their persecutors even to the point of laying down their lives. They know. They know in their hearts that God will not tolerate evil forever. He will complete justice for them because He is holy, and true. It is right for God to inflict the appropriate penalty for the wrong done. That's what we learn from the cross and the final judgment, isn't it? If you repent and place your faith in Jesus, God punishes your sins on Jesus. If you do not repent, and place your faith in Jesus. He will punish your sins on you in the lake of fire. And we learn from the cross and the final judgment that God is a God of justice. He will judge His enemies. And remember, in Revelation, those who dwell on the earth aren't just anybody. They are God's enemies. Appropriately, then, these martyrs cry... How long before you will avenge our blood? That question, how long, is a familiar one in Scripture. It comes often when God's people witness the the wicked prospering. Uh, In Zechariah chapter 1, verse 12, when the nations had, uh, you know, God had sent Israel into, into exile and the nations had just heaped and heaped and heaped persecution on them. Uh, the cry goes up in Zechariah 1.12. How long will you have no mercy? David cries this way in Psalm chapter 6, verse 3. He's, he's facing what the text describes as these workers of evil 
And he cries, My soul is greatly troubled. How long, O Lord? We hear it again in Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And then again, we hear it from Asaph in Psalm 74. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff over us? Psalm 94, verse 1, invites all the people to cry, O Lord, God of vengeance, how long shall the wicked exalt? So again and again, we see this cry. When the martyrs in Revelation 6 cry how long, they are echoing the cries of God's people across the centuries. Perhaps they are echoing some of your own cries. Perhaps you have suffered at the hands of godless people. And you have cried, How long, O Lord? Perhaps you learn of others suffering for Jesus' name, like Shamira Nakato in Uganda. On January 5th this year, Shamira's Muslim husband hung her and their two children after learning that they had converted to Christianity. And we read stories like this and we cry, How long, O Lord? We hear our brothers and sisters crying this way in Ukraine and Russia. How long, O Lord? We see here that we are not alone in these cries. These cries are rooted in a knowledge of God's holiness and truthfulness. And we're seeing here that God also hears these cries. And that brings us to verse 11. The martyr's reward and rest. Verse 11 says, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Now I'll come back to that remainder of verse 11 in a minute, but for now notice how God rewards these martyrs. He gives them white robes. Okay, In Revelation, white can represent purity, uh, but it can also represent victory or conquering. Uh, such as uh, it represents kind of the honor that you would give somebody who has been victorious. Okay, the last time we saw it used this way was in chapter 6, verse 1. And there, white also stood for this victory, this honor that a victor would have, but it was the victory of of power-hungry rulers uh, who were allowed for a time to conquer. But such victories of these power-hungry rulers proves to be very short-lived. The true conquerors in Revelation are those who lay down their lives for Jesus' sake. God himself clothes them in white. God himself sets his approval upon them forever. In other words, 
martyrdom in Revelation is not depicted as the church's defeat. It is depicted as the church's victory. Even more, the church wins the war against Satan's kingdom through gospel witness, even unto death. Okay, we're going to have to see this more fully when we get to to chapter 12, so we're going to have to wait on that. But the point in chapter 12, verse 11, that he makes is that the church conquers Satan, he says, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. And so how does the church win? How does the church conquer and overcome? By laying down their lives in the spread of the gospel. That's what these white robes are about. The reward is honor for their victory. The Lord also tells these martyrs to rest. To rest. He says, rest a little longer. Now, the, the idea of the saints resting after, after death appears again in chapter 14, verse 13. And there it's seen as this divine blessing uh, that God gives to those who die in the Lord. Uh, rest is seen as a reward for their, their labors. Um, we saw this rest in Hebrews chapter 4 when we were going through Hebrews, didn't we? Where, where you are uh, getting to enjoy the, the presence of God at rest. By contrast, in Revelation, those who worship the beast never have any rest after death. They only experience torment. Sometimes in our culture, we think of death as laying somebody to rest. The Bible teaches that only one group of people experiences true rest. And that is those who belong to the Lamb. Only the followers of the Lamb experience true rest. Rest in God's presence. A unique feature about the rest in uh, chapter 6 verse 11 is that it seems anticipatory of an even greater rest to come. Rest a little longer. God says. So, nevertheless, there is a rest that they experience in the presence of God. Having labored well in the Lord's work and given their lives, these martyrs are resting in the presence, presence of God. Now, this phrase, a little longer, is what I wanted to circle back to. Um, this is where we see our last point. The martyr's mission continuing through us. The martyr's mission continuing through us. They're told to rest a little longer. And that seems to be the answer to their question, how long? A little longer, which in Revelation means for the duration of this present age. Again, chapter 12 is going to sort this out for us with the three and a half years, in a, but it's between Jesus' re- resurrection and his return. This is the little while longer. But, but then he explains why there is this delay. Why why is there this delay? He says, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, the first thing we should note here is God's sovereignty. 
God is not less in control when his saints die than when his saints are alive. Okay, built into his plan is that many are going to shed their blood in bringing the gospel to others. That's what he means by to be killed as they themselves have been. Why were these Christians killed? Verse 9, they were killed for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. That's the other thing we should note. Others will follow these martyrs in sharing the gospel even to the point of death. Only when that witness, that work of witness is finished, will God bring the end. All right, similar remarks come from Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 14, right after telling the disciples, they're going to throw you in prison, they're going to kill you, you will be hated by all nations for my namesake, he says, this gospel of the kingdom will go out as a testimony to all the inhabited earth, and then the end will come. So you put it together. Before the end comes, God's will for the church is that we finish the work of worldwide witness, and that means others are going to join these martyrs. Others will spill their blood to get the gospel out, and that's how we fit into the picture. We're part of this ongoing witness. If you follow the Lamb wherever He goes, you belong to completing this work of worldwide witness, some of which will lead to martyrdom. So what does that mean? What should you take away from John's vision of the fifth seal? The first is that you and I need to count the cost of discipleship. You need to count the cost of discipleship. I think anywhere in Scripture, as well as anywhere today, we read stories of people laying down their lives for Jesus... Anytime we read about Christian martyrdom, it brings us face to face with the cost of discipleship. Martyrdom reminds us that following Jesus requires that we lay down everything. It reminds us that by coming to Jesus, we surrender ourselves wholly to his will. When Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him, included in that call is a willingness to accept betrayal, to accept suffering, to accept persecution, and to accept death wherever obedience to God's word requires it. The cross isn't just an irritating neighbor. The cross isn't just a stressful job. The cross is a place where you go to die with Jesus. It is a place you go to die in the path of loving 
obedience. That is the cost of discipleship. Are you ready to follow Jesus, the Lamb, this way? When you look at these martyrs, have you considered what discipleship truly costs? Or is the cross more so an escape from judgment while you live how you would have lived anyway without Jesus? Reflecting on this passage, Craig Keener writes, God will vindicate Christian witnesses, and therefore we witness boldly. Yet in the United States, it is often my experience that Christians are complacent. Satisfied with their own conversion and personal growth. A passage like this unsettles our complacency, doesn't it? To follow the Lamb means bearing witness even when others would take our lives for it. Perhaps you weren't asked to consider the cost of discipleship before you were baptized. Perhaps you weren't discipled to know what following Jesus entailed. That he really did mean losing your life to find it. That he he really does expect us to renounce all that we have to follow him. If that's you, I want you to consider this morning the, the faithful testimony of these martyrs under the altar. Consider the pattern of their lives and see in their deaths that Jesus really is worth all of your allegiance. Jesus really is worth all of your life. Next, present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. That's how John sees these martyrs under the altar. As a sacrifice. The sacrifice they bring isn't something to atone for their sins. Atonement has already taken place by the blood of Jesus. Only Jesus freed us from our sins by His blood, chapter 1 taught us. If the ultimate sacrifice has been made, then what is the sacrifice that we bring as God's new priesthood? To use Paul's words in Romans 12, it is the presentation of our bodies as a living sacrifice Holy and acceptable to God, which Paul calls your act of spiritual worship. Is this part of your... I mean, we love singing together. I loved singing that we will dance on the streets that are golden. Somebody was trying to get us to start clapping. We should have joined them. It's a glorious song. That is part of our worship as a church. But something else that we need to include in our understanding of Christian worship is this. That true worship begins every day with a posture of willing acceptance that I too may be set apart as a sacrifice. Worship begins with the surrendering of our bodies for the Lord's purpose. Holy giving our bodies for the Lord's use in getting the gospel to others. Now, not for all of us, but perhaps for some of us, that will mean spilling your blood 
to help others know the good news of Jesus. Some of you may have heard of Polycarp. He was a bishop in Smyrna in the second century. So between AD 156, 163, there was a violent persecution that arose against the church. Polycarp is 86 years old. And he was burned at the stake in those days. And beforehand, the authorities promised to release Polycarp if he would just curse Christ's name. Polycarp answered, 86 years I have served him, and he never did me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But when the second century author records Polycarp's final prayer at the stake, at the stake listen to how Polycarp describes himself in his prayer. May I be received today as a rich and acceptable sacrifice among those who are in thy presence, and thou hast prepared and foretold and fulfilled God who are faithful and true. Talking about these martyrs. So, is this where you are today? Do you have a posture of, of willing acceptance that you too may be slaughtered for your testimony about Jesus? Are you at a place where you would be ready to lay down your life for the Word of God? I think for a lot of us, that answer is probably mixed, isn't it? Yes, no, maybe, I want to be there. How can we get there? How can we get there? We start by treasuring Christ more today. We start by walking intimately with the Lord today. Something that gripped me this week, when you're reading these stories of the various martyrs throughout church history, repeatedly what you hear in their testimonies is that their ability to suffer torture stemmed from their communion with Christ. From, one, from what one brother called conversing with God in his heart. We grow towards becoming a willing sacrifice by learning to love the Lamb who laid down His life for us. By communing with Him right now. If you're communing with Him right now, He's not going to let you down when you come to that place of sacrifice. His Spirit is going to give you the words, He says. The spirit of grace and glory will rest upon you, Peter says. So we start by asking the Lord today to make us more like his son. We start by learning today how to, how to trust his gracious provision in smaller acts of obedience, in smaller tests that we experience, that we then count his, that we can then learn how to count on his gracious provision when the greater acts of obedience come. That's where we start learning daily to say, 
Lord, I am yours. Lord, I am at your disposal. Use me in the service of your kingdom, whatever may come. Speaking more of costly acts, uh, we need to expect persecution when spreading the gospel to others. Okay, from my vantage point, the church in America is ill-prepared for persecution. Some of that is due just to the, the expectations that that's set by our more affluent context where being comfortable is kind of the norm for us. Kind of comes, becomes the expectation. Uh, some of that is due to decades of complacency in churches that tolerate nominal Christianity. And so we think we're, we're being good Christians and we just did it like the people before us and that might not always be the case. Some of that is due to living in a country whose founding principles at some points overlap with Christian morality. And not only do we get used to that, but sometimes we get rather surprised and even disturbed when anything starts messing that up. But throughout the New Testament... Suffering, persecution, and martyrdom are the norm for Christians. Our cultural moment in America is the exception. Okay? Never should we intentionally provoke persecution or pursue it as like this kind of romanticized way of life Historically, the church has gone wrong on that side of things, too. It's also not wrong to to pray for those in high positions that that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, like 1 Timothy says. But persecution is to be expected in a world that hates Jesus. And that's true here, too. Our culture hates Jesus. Expect Persecution. You need to know that so that you don't throw in the towel at the first whiff of hardships. Anyone wanting to be baptized here, one of the passages we have them turn to often is Matthew 10, 16. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Becoming a Christian means... You're going to become a sheep in the midst of wolves. You bring your nine-year-old to be baptized, that's where we're taking them. If you're 32 and want to be baptized, that's where we're taking you. That's lesson one. It's basic Christianity. The steady call throughout Revelation is for the endurance of the saints through great tribulation. We will not reach the Muslim and Hindu peoples without persecution and, in some cases, martyrdom. So we need to expect it. We need to prepare ourselves for it. Uh, 
some of you have probably read Richard Wormbrand's stuff, and it uh, cracks me up every time when he would take children. This is like their version of Sunday school. He would take children to the zoo, and he would take them to the lions. And then he would talk to them about how men would do worse things to them than these lions would. And then ask them to follow Jesus. <laughs> Whew. Can add that into our dig program here. Finally, trust the Lord for final vindication. Trust the Lord for final vindication. In the fifth seal, we see the Lord rewarding His people with white robes and rest. You need to look to this reward to sustain you through suffering. Losing your stuff Suffering bodily, facing death, right? If you start losing stuff, you're, you can feel the tug. Oh, I don't, do I want to keep following Jesus? Especially when those, the things become more and more precious to you, like your own family members. All these losses will tempt us to forsake Jesus, but again and again, in Revelation, God points us to the heavenly reward and vindication. And this stands in contrast to those who dwell on the earth. Now, we're going to look at this next time, next week, hopefully. Uh, but the sixth seal becomes an answer to the martyr's cry for vengeance. Okay, those who oppress God's people, they think they're safe, and then God shows up in wrath, and everything around them is crumbling, and they are crying out for the rocks to fall on them. That's what's happening to those who dwell on the earth when the Lord's wrath shows up. Where are the saints? They are in heaven before the presence of God, safe and protected, robed in white. These saints find themselves vindicated and safe in God's presence, and that's where you're going to find yourself as you're faithful. There's no need to vindicate yourself in this life. God will vindicate you. There's no need to lash out and avenge yourself and you're going to take down your enemies. A far better judge is going to act, brothers and sisters. And like these martyrs, we too must follow in the footsteps of Jesus. 1 Peter 2.23 tells us, When Jesus was reviled, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's how we go. Trusting the Lord and not ourselves for final vindication. We go trusting that our cry, how long, is not a cry that's going to go unheard. It is a cry that God answers and that He will answer. He answers first by explaining why He delays, that others may hear the gospel message that we have. But He also will answer our cry, how long. When the mission is finished, God will bring an end to all evil. He will judge the wicked. Every tear that fell when you cried, how long our God will wipe away from your face forever. You will have no more crying or pain anymore. 
Remember this when others mistreat you. Remember this when others reject your acts of kindness. Remember this when the path of love leads you to care for very hardened and difficult people. Remember this when others try to ruin you for holding fast to Jesus' testimony. God sees you. The Father hears you. Jesus will vindicate you and give you rest in his presence. This is our hope as we stake our lives on the word of God and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, you are good and glorious. We pray that you would help us as for the days ahead, that you would prepare us to suffer for the name of Jesus. Make us faithful in our efforts, whether small or great, whether it's at home or in the public square, with each step, make us faithful. Make us people who stand on your word and hold fast to Jesus' testimony like a great treasure. In his name we pray. Amen.